Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome once again to another Oddcast featuring the Odd Man Out. I appreciate you guys taking your time to hang out with me once again while I ramble on about all kinds of different things. And today... It's going to be another continuance and the final in the series of Whose War Is It Anyway? Yes, one more about Ukraine and Russia and all that good stuff. Yeah, I got kind of swept up in this thing. I usually don't do current events, but, you know, anything having to do with foreign policy and geopolitics, I do find very interesting. But the thing is, it's a very, very deep rabbit hole. It just keeps going and continuing and there's so many players in the game, so many layers to the onion. So it really is extremely time-consuming. And I think I'm going to try to steer away from these current events after this because it's just taking too much time. Now, I have many irons in the fire. I have an episode coming out about the Illuminati that I've been promising, Skull and Bones Part 2, Bohemian Grove, and several others. So just stay tuned and don't lose heart. But please bear with me once again while we cover this subject of Ukraine and Russia once again. And I think that uh, you'll find some of the things I pulled out here pretty interesting. And I'll be stopping in from time to time between the clips. This is going to be a clip-dominated episode, which I don't do very often. But I felt like this was needed to help understand. And we'll cover a few things that we've covered in the other two episodes just to give context. I think this will be a good final episode on this subject to kind of finalize the perspective on Ukraine and Russia. And once again, I don't claim to be an expert on this subject, but I do think that it's very important to pull out the facts and information that obviously the mainstream media isn't going to talk about. Because, you know, it's it's obvious to me that the... Media, the bigwigs, the military-industrial complex, if you will, and all that goes into it, which means that's the corporate news and so many other industries that are connected, they've all gone on the side of Ukraine. Now, we are going to dare ask the question about Russia, is the enemy of my enemy my friend? Because the alternative media community is not really doing that for the most part. So I think that's something we need to look into because we do not trust our own leaders from either the Democrat or Republican Party. So why should we trust and put our faith in a foreign leader? So we're going to look at some things there and kind of compare some facts and information and kind of ask that question. And we just don't want to become fanboys of either narrative because that's very dangerous and that's what you know the normies do. So we don't want to be like that. We want to continue to be skeptical, healthy skepticism, 
and we want to ask the questions and then each person can kind of decide what they think about the information that I give. So that's all I'm trying to do is kind of uh, get to the bottom of the story because I feel like, you know, we are, we, we really have this uh, almost inherent need to trust and think that there's going to be a hero coming, you know, from the rear to save us all and and defend us and all that stuff. So I think that we might ought to kind of uh, take a step back, always take a step back and look at the big picture, look at the macro, not the micro, and uh, go from there. So without any further ado, I'm going to play the first clip, which is author Douglas Valentine of the CIA is Organized Crime, and he's going to be talking about the U.S. and their involvement in Ukraine since the 50s. Here we go. After World War II, communism became the bugaboo and the Soviet Union became the enemy. And even though, and one of the things the CIA did right after World War II was hire a lot of Nazis. Guys who'd been, who'd been Nazis were now recycled and, and brought into the CIA. Uh, uh, the rocket, Nazi rocket scientist, uh, von Braun, went to work for the United States de- developing intercontinental ballistic missiles. So. Um, the past, the Nazi past was forgiven, and Nazis went to work for the United States, including a guy named Reinhard Gellin, who had been the Nazi intelligence, military intelligence officer in charge of operations against the Soviets in um, Eastern Europe. And this guy, Gellin, became the head of the, uh, the CIA's main intelligence operator into um, East Berlin and, and areas like the Ukraine, where he had, where the Nazis had intelligence agents uh, during World War II. And this guy, Reinhard Gellin, on behalf of his uh, new CIA masters, just activated all the agent nets that he had during World War II. The same thing was going on in Ukraine, although the Ukraine had very much um, uh, large swaths of its population were fascists and were actively involved against the war against the Soviets um, and uh, were enemies of the United States in World War II. After World War II, they became assets of the CIA. So the CIA has been developing fascist assets in the Ukraine for 70 years. And every year since 1948, when the CIA was, went into operation, it has a, had a station in the Ukraine with a CIA officer who's running operations. And those operations have all been directed against first the Soviet Union and after the collapse of the Soviet Union against Russia. There's a lot of momentum that has built up over 75 years. Vast agent nets have been put in place. Sleeper agents have been in place for decades and they're all working against Russia, which is why nowadays it's so hard for the mainstream media and the government to shift and, 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 and even consider for a moment having good relations with, with Russia. Uh, NATO, the whole, its whole mandate and its whole ex- reason for its existence has been to threaten and roll back Russia and eventually sabotage and subversion, subvert it and put it out of business. And Ukraine, the CIA's operations in the Ukraine are the cutting edge vanguard of this effort. So if you look at recent events in Ukraine, you have to see them in that context, how for decades the CIA has been trying to recruit Ukrainian politicians, Ukrainian businessmen who are sympathetic and compatible with Western American ideas and values and and interests of of fighting against the Russians and recruiting them and putting them in place and um, uh, setting them up with bank accounts, giving them paramilitary training. Everything the CIA does across the board, Ukraine has been the vanguard of this operation against Russia. Okay, let me cut in here for a second. It's almost over, but I just wanted to also add that the money that is coming into NATO is so obscene, and we looked at that in the first Whose War Is It Anyway, that there's no way they would end this meal ticket. There's no way that they would end this gravy train. And it's just like any other 
uh, welfare type of program. It's the same exact thing with the military industrial complex side because these people who are receiving obscene amounts of money are not going to give that up. So it's like uh, the uh, FBI guy, I forget his name, I want to say Thomas Fuentes, he said that they never really come out and say, well, a problem is fixed because they want to up the budget for the next year. And if they say something is done and fixed, then the budget goes down. So the whole system is working against the taxpayer. The whole system is inefficient and only meant to spend more and more and more. So that's why I say that no amount of taxation will be efficient because no amount of spending is ever enough because these bureaucrats love to spend just like these billionaires. And these bureaucrats become millionaires and billionaires, and they become very wealthy through working the system. So, you know, what can I say? It's not a good system. And I don't know what is a better system out there, but I know there's so much corruption involved that it will never work for the good of the taxpayer unless the whole thing is fixed. Now, you may say, well, that sounds like a great reset to me, but their idea of a great reset is not our idea of a great reset. You know, I still consider myself a capitalist in many ways, but I see what our system has become where it's not, you know, it's not solely capitalist. We have these, you know, the welfare state basically which is more socialistic, and then we have elements of fascism and communism in it as well. This big protectionist racket, of course, that I talk about all the time with your government being in bed with all these big corporations and bankers and whatnot. So military-industrial complex is a huge, huge part of that just because it pulls in so much funding. And really, I will add, too, that many of these foreign entanglements that our government and our leaders get involved in They always say it's for democracy, and they always say it's for freedom and equality and all these things. But really, we know that it's always, always for either gas, getting a gas pipeline, natural gas, or the sphere of influence in getting these multinational globalist companies into these countries. So a lot of what is going on between Russia and the United States and the West in general is just all about competition. So competition has to be destroyed. So I'll let Douglas Valentine finish his statements, and then we'll go on to something else. The details are in my book, The CIA's Organized Crime, how this works at the, ver- at the, at the agent level, how, it, how the CIA would go around and work with uh, after the coup that threw out a pro-Russian government and installed a pro-American, anti-Russian government, how the CIA already had, had security services and military people in place who were able to create private militias that would then work against individuals in the Ukraine who were pro-Russian, how they, you know, it, just like treating it like South Vietnam or any other country that the United States occupies. And that is the situation in the Ukraine. The United States occupies Ukraine. Its government is an, the, an occupation government that's supported and funded and directed by the United States. And the businessmen and the military people and the politicians that support the Americans benefit and those who don't are put on hit lists and they're targeted. And, and that's basically the history and the summary of what's going on in the Ukraine. And the, the CIA, through its agent operations, which have been in place for 70 years, is at the vanguard of that uh, operation. I thought next we would look at Volodymyr Zelensky once again. You know, they've made him out to be this larger-than-life hero. I think they've depended on these Jungian archetypes, you know, Carl Jung or Jung, and the archetypes that he came up with, these character traits. And, you know, there's some truth to that, although I think that it's blown out of proportion. But I think the social psychologists and the powers that shouldn't be like to use these against us. And it's just like what they do with presidents. But this guy, you know, they've had such a short time to build his character. They normally have a little bit longer to do that. So they've really ramped it up and made him this almost comic book-esque kind of guy. But let's look a little bit deeper at him. You remember that we talked about him being implicated in the Pandora Papers. And I think there was like 
20 some odd, nearly 30 Ukrainian politicians who were actually implicated in the Pandora Papers. And so if you didn't listen to the second episode, Zelensky is a millionaire several times over. He's got a a TV studio. He's got numerous homes. I read an article where he sold his home in Italy last November for like $4.5 million if I'm not mistaken. Uh, So anyway, let's look at this here. It says it was reported as recently as April 2021 that the ostensibly liberal Zelensky wanted to appoint one Sergei Sterninko, a former leader of the neo-Nazi right sector, as the head of the SBU, or the Secret Service, in Ukraine. This being despite Sterninko being under investigation for murder and for the involvement in a massacre during the events of 2014. That may have been the Odessa Massacre. If Zelensky, the current and apparently liberal president, is willing to be in alliance with the Nazis and murderers, let alone seek to place a Nazi and a murderer in charge of, and of all things, the Secret Service, then how much of a minor problem or minority presence can the neo-Nazis and ultra-nationalists be? Svoboda, for the record, is widely acknowledged as a neo-Nazi party and was founded by Ole Tonibach and Andrei Parobai, the latter of whom was the chairman of Ukraine's parliament until 2019 and was invited to address the U.S. Congress three years ago, and the former having been famously photographed with Senator John McCain and Victoria Newland during the events of 2014. And actually, I found a picture of Ole and Yatsenuk, and they're at some rally giving a speech, and Yatsenuk is even giving the Hitler salute. So I thought that was pretty darn interesting. It also finishes here with, A key figure in Azov's political wing, the National Corps Party, is Olina Semenyaka, who has been photographed with the swastika flag and doing a Hitler salute. She was invited to be a visiting fellow at the Vienna-based Institute for Human Sciences. That's probably another NGO we need to look into. Now, I've jotted down several of these Ukrainian nationalist groups that we talked about earlier. I think there's a couple new ones in here. The Ukrainian White Hammer. Of course, we talked about the Svoboda Party just a second ago. The famous, now famous, Azov Battalion the C-14 group, which is a youth movement. Of course, they have numerous Banderists, fans of Stefan Bandera. There's also the Centuria group. There's also the Trident group. And, of course, the Right Sector. And I think there's a couple more. Now, I found this article from the Atlantic Council from 2018, which I think is important because, as we learned in these episodes, the Atlantic Council works hand-in-hand with NATO. And, of course, Soros is one of the big donors, as well as the Rockefeller Brothers and the Rockefeller Fund and all these different ones. But anyway, the uh, title says, Ukraine's got a real problem with far-right violence. And no, RT didn't write this headline. So it says, it sounds like the stuff of Kremlin propaganda, but it's not. Last week... And I will not be able to pronounce this actual word. It looks like it says, Hromadske Radio revealed that Ukraine's Ministry of Youth and Sports is funding the neo-Nazi group C-14 to promote national patriotic education projects in the country. Now, on June 8th, the ministry announced that it will award C-14 a little less than $17,000 for a children's camp. It also awarded funds to the Holosaviv Hideout and Educational Assembly, both of which have links to the far right. The revelation represents a dangerous example of law enforcement tacitly accepting or even encouraging the increasing lawlessness of the far right nationalist groups willing to use violence against those they don't like. Since the beginning of 2018, C-14 and other far right groups such as the Azov-affiliated National Militia the right sector, and Karpatska, Sitch, and others have attacked Roma groups several times, as well as anti-fascist demonstrations. They've wrecked city council meetings and events hosted by Amnesty International, 
art exhibits, and environmental activist groups. On March 8th, violent groups launched an attack against the International Women's Day marchers in cities across Ukraine. In only a few of these cases did the police do anything to prevent the attacks, and in some, they even arrested peaceful demonstrators rather than the actual perpetrators. You know, people like me, and I think I mentioned this on the last episode, have been getting called Nazis anytime we had a difference in opinion on policies of anyone from the left. And now it's got so out of control that it's kind of hard for some of the people on the right to take this serious when they talk about right-wing Nazis and right-wing militias and nationalists. But if you look at the videos and you watch some of these things and you do enough uh, looking into it, you understand that this is way different. These are not Republicans or Libertarians complaining because their rights are getting trampled on. Although I'm sure that these people's rights have been trampled on over the years with all the different governments. But these people really have that racist element that goes all the way back to World War II. And they openly talk about the Aryan race and and rising up again and things like that. So I think that if people would look into it a bit more, they would understand that it's just amazing how now these groups are being lauded and armed. And I think it was Jen Briney from Congressional Dish. She had a tweet the other day that said something like, well, if Russia does win... Look at all these weapons they're going to be able to confiscate from the Azov Battalion and these other Ukrainian groups and soldiers and whatnot. But, you know, we've also got all the all the guys uh, from Al-Qaeda and whatever other groups in the Middle East who've been able to confiscate all those weapons and military equipment that the Biden administration left behind. So we're getting set up for more wars down the road. I'll go on just a little bit with this article. It says international human rights groups have sounded the alarm after the March 8th attacks. Amnesty International warned that Ukraine is sinking into a chaos of uncontrolled violence posed by these radical groups and their total impunity. Practically no one in the country can feel safe under these conditions. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Freedom House, and Frontline Defenders warned in a letter that radical groups acting under a veneer of patriotism and traditional values were allowed to operate under an atmosphere of near total impunity that cannot but embolden these groups to commit more attacks. You know, they mentioned Freedom House, and I was looking into Freedom House, and that is actually, like NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, Another one of these NGOs that seems to be deep state controlled and works hand in hand with the Soros Foundations and others during these times of revolt and when there's a a regime change in these countries, a revolution, an orange revolution, a purple revolution, these type of things, they're right there to kind of spur it on. So I wouldn't put much faith in Freedom House. But it goes on here, government agencies at all levels also should stop cooperating with these groups. In addition to the youth ministry's problematic funding, C-14 and Kiev City District recently signed an agreement allowing C-14 to establish a municipal guard to patrol the streets. Three such militia-run guard forces are already registered in Kiev, and 21 operate in other cities as well. And C-14's dangerous leader, Yevhen Karas, or Karas, even boasts openly about cooperating with the security services of Ukraine, or the SBU. All this needs to end, and state officials found to be cooperating with these extremists must be removed. So I think we need to remove this sitting government, along with the United States, who are actually supporting these guys, and everyone else who are sending them money and weapons. But, you know, that's just me. So it's just amazing. The level of hypocrisy is unfreaking believable. But it just goes to show that, you know, these groups, when it comes to winning, when it comes to money and power, nothing matters. They'll support their supposed enemies. You know, you see Jewish guys working with Nazi groups. You see the Atlantic Council, NATO, they'll work with communists when they want to. They'll work with Nazis when they want to. It doesn't matter because it's all about power. There's really no integrity involved. 
Hundreds of Ukrainian right-wingers have rallied in Kiev to protest against government policies. It comes in the wake of a deadly standoff between radical nationalists and police in the west of the country. The right sector was one of the strongest forces in the protests which led to the ousting of ex-president Yanukovych. Over the last few years, experts in violent extremism have grown especially alarmed about the Azov movement. The group emerged from the revolution that swept across Ukraine in 2014, uh, and it has gotten a lot stronger amid the ongoing war with pro-Russian forces in eastern Ukraine. The fighting in that region has become kind of ideal breeding ground for militias like Azov. At their public events, one thing that surprised me was how many Ukrainians tend to see Azov not as militants or extremists, but as war heroes. In Kiev, the capital, I watched an Independence Day parade where veterans of the Azov Battalion marched alongside other volunteer militias surrounded by cheering crowds who thanked them for defending Ukraine against Russia. But even at the march, there were signs of the far-right ideology that's so common inside Azov. The symbols on their flags have been especially controversial. Azov says it combines the letters I and N for idea of nation, but extremism experts see it as an emblem of Nazism. The official symbol of Azov, it's a version of Wolfsangel. It was one of the um, symbols of one of uh, SS division during the World War II. It is one of uh, more or less usual symbols for neo-Nazi groups all over the world. And it's not just about their symbols. When it was founded in 2014, Azov drew many of its commanders and recruits from Ukraine's most notorious far-right groups, including outright neo-Nazis. We basically recruited everyone who could hold weapons in their hand when Ukrainian state was paralyzed and the defense of Ukrainian state was totally in the hand of Ukrainian volunteers. So there were many war adventurers, um, uh, guys who believed that uh, they are uh, on kind of ideological tour to save maybe uh, the future of the West and so on and so forth. Or so the, the future of the white race? Or, yes, yes. Azov's paramilitary wing is now a major fighting force, with its own bases and training grounds near the front lines of the war against pro-Russian forces. The protesters are back, but in place of ordinary citizens, now they're battle-hardened fighters. They're the same slogans as last year. Ukraine above all else. Glory, glory, glory. But in the mouths of the right sector, they take on a more sinister aspect. Well, there can be few more poignant depictions of how unfinished Ukraine's revolution is than this site. All of these people bearing the banners of the far-right group, these people who helped overthrow Ukraine's pro-Russian president a year and a half ago, and they've been telling me that they want to bring down this president as well. Glory to Ukraine, they shout. Banner of the right sector harks back to a Ukrainian nationalist movement from the 1940s. They say the colors represent the blood of Ukrainians spilt upon their country's black soil. Their critics call them fascists and neo-Nazis. And just to finish up here, I suggest looking into Wotan Jugin's Thule Signal, Alexei Levkin, that's A-L-E-K-S-E-Y, L-E-V-K-I-N. The right sector is Dimitro Yarosh. That is D-M-Y-T-R-O-Y-A-R-O-S-H. The National Resistance, Alexei Sivinarenko. And that's A-L-E-X-E-Y-S-V-Y-N-A-R-E-N-K-O. Now let's look at another interesting connection here. In wewillfall.org, they have an article called How One Ukrainian Billionaire Funded Hunter Biden, President Zelensky, and the Neo-Nazi Azov Battalion. Kolomoski owns Burisma Holdings, the real person who was the benefactor to and the boss of Vice President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, at the Ukrainian gas company Burisma Holdings. And this article claims that Mykola Zloshevsky was not actually the CEO of Burisma Holdings, but it was Igor Kolomoski instead, who was part of the newly installed Ukrainian government, 
which the Obama administration itself had actually just installed in Ukraine in what the head of the private CIA firm Stratfor correctly called the most blatant coup in history. Shortly after the Obama administration's Ukrainian coup on March 2, 2014, Kolomoski, who supported Yanukovych's overthrow, was appointed the governor in a province of Ukraine. Hunter Biden, with no experience in the industry or region, would join Kolomoski's Burisma Holdings two months later on May 12, 2014. A 2012 study of Burisma Holdings, done in Ukraine by the Anti-Corruption Action Center, ANTAC, an investigative nonprofit co-funded by American billionaire Soros, George Soros, and the U.S. State Department, found that the true owner of Burisma Holdings was none other than Ukrainian billionaire oligarch Igor Kolomoski. The study, which was funded to dig up corruption on the Ukrainian president Viktor Yanukovych, instead found that Igor Kolomoski managed to seize the largest reserves of natural gas in Ukraine. Burisma Holdings changed owners in 2011 when it was taken over by an offshore Cyprus enterprise called Brocity Investments Limited, spelled B-R-O-C-I-T-I, and subsequently moved addresses under the same roof as Ukrnaft Borinia and Esko Pivnich, two Ukrainian gas companies which happened to also be owned by Kolomoski through offshore entities in the British Virgin Islands. Ole Kanivietz, who worked as CEO of this company, confirmed Kolomoski as the owner of Brisma Holdings in the 2012 reports, saying the Privat Group is the immediate owner. This company was founded by Mykola Zlochevsky some time ago, but he later sold his shares to the Privat Group. In other words, Hunter Biden's boss and benefactor of Burisma Holdings is the same Ukrainian billionaire oligarch who also claimed the position of boss and benefactor over Vladimir Zelensky before he became Ukraine's president. Kolomoski, who currently holds a net worth of $1.8 billion, making him the 1,750th richest person in the world, owns holdings in metal, petroleum, and the media sector, where he has had a long history with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. For years, Zelensky's company produced shows for Kolomoski's TV network, One Plus One Media Group, one of the largest conglomerates in Ukraine. Zelensky achieved national fame portraying a president on a hit television sitcom called Servant of the People, which was broadcast on a channel owned by Kolomoski. In 2019, Kolomoski's media channels gave a big boost to Zelensky's presidential campaign, while Kolomoski even provided security, lawyers, and vehicles for Zelensky during his campaign. Kolomoski's bodyguard and lawyer accompanied Zelensky on the campaign trail as Zelensky was chauffeured around in a Range Rover owned by one of Kolomoski's companies. The Pandora Papers showed that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and his TV production partners were beneficiaries of a web of offshore firms created in 2012, the same year Zelensky's production company entered into a deal with Kolomoski's media group, which allegedly received $41 million in funds from Kolomoski's private bank. Zelensky's political rival, President Petro Poroshenko, commented on their connection during the campaign trail. Fate intended to put me together with Kolomoski's puppet in the second round of the elections. After Zelensky's victory, Kolomoski, who had spent the last years living between Israel and Switzerland, returned to Ukraine to keep up his relationship with the new president, nominating over 30 lawmakers to Zelensky's newly established party and maintaining influence with many of them in parliament. Igor Kolomoski has been a top funder of the Azov Battalion since it was formed in 2014. Now keep in mind, he is Jewish. He has also bankrolled private militias like the Dnipro and Adar battalions and has personally deployed them to protect his financial interests. Then it goes on to say, before becoming part of Ukraine's armed forces, who funded Azov? The unit receiving backing from Ukraine's interior minister in 2014 as the government had recognized its own military was too weak to fight off the pro-Russian separatists 
and relied on paramilitary volunteer forces. These forces were privately funded by oligarchs, the most well-known being Igor Kolomoski, an energy magnet billionaire and governor. The Luhansk and Donetsk regions compromise a larger region known together as the Donbass. In 2014, shortly after the Obama administration's maiden coup, the two regions held a referendum on seceding from Ukraine in which 96% of the Luhansk and 89% of the Donetsk voted for the creation of two new independent entities in eastern Ukraine. Moscow said the vote reflected the will of the people, but the European Union called the elections illegal and illegitimate, which quickly turned violent and descended into an all-out conflict between Russia-backed separatists and Ukrainian military and pro-government militias. Donbass became the epicenter for a battle for global influence between NATO and Moscow in which the homes, schools, and offices of innocent civilians were simply collateral damage, and water, electricity, and gas were regularly shut off for the residents who paid the ultimate price. The war in Donbass has continued to this day, killing an estimated 14,000 while tearing eastern Ukraine's Donbass region into shreds. So again, I'll leave that article in my show notes if you want to read further into it. There's a little bit more in there, but I thought it kind of explained a few things for us and uh, helped us to maybe uh, get a bigger picture of what's been going on there. And also the inside scoop on Kolomoski, Zelensky, and Hunter Biden and Burisma Holdings. So you've probably noticed that I'm not exactly going in sequence of the things that have happened historically in Ukraine and Russia, because it's one of those things where the more you look, the more you find, and there's just no way to keep it in sequence. But I think we need to look back a little bit on the history of Ukraine, Russia, the expansion of NATO, and those kinds of things, just to kind of give some kind of a historic background there. So the official kind of definition of the Cold War was it was a political standoff between the Western allies of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, and the countries of the Warsaw Pact, often referred to as the Eastern Bloc. The latter was dominated by the Soviet Union, including Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and East Germany. All of these countries, as you probably know, went through significant changes after the Cold War and after the breakup of the Soviet Union. It was on November 9th, 1990, U.S. Secretary of State James Baker told Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev in the Kremlin's St. Catherine Hall that NATO would not expand beyond reunified Germany one inch in the eastern direction. But in 1999, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic joined NATO, and Russia felt like they had been stabbed in the back. Another expansion came with the accession of seven Central and Eastern European countries, including Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. In 1997, former Russian ambassador Jack Matlock was asked to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. When asked about whether or not more member states should be added to NATO, he said that it was unwise and that, in fact, it may well go down in history as the most profound strategic blunder made since the end of the Cold War. Of course, George W. Bush talked of bringing Ukraine into NATO. And actually, while we're talking about it, Bill Clinton actually had the chance to bring Russia into NATO, and he had met with the president, and there was some talk of that, but he decided to shoot it down. Now, Poland, when it became part of NATO, it really caused a rift between Russia and NATO and Poland because they've always had a turbulent relationship going back all the way to the Middle Ages. So, of course, Russia saw that as a direct threat. And wouldn't you know, the late... Zbigniew Brzezinski, who wrote a whole book basically on how we should put all the Baltic states into NATO, especially Ukraine. He was very adamant in the grand chessboard that without Ukraine, Russia was no 
empire at all. It couldn't be successful because of the ports in the Black Sea and the gas pipelines and the different things that Ukraine provided for Russia. And of course, the global corporati network does not like competition. And that's what a lot of these things come down to is competition. Now, interestingly enough, Brzezinski's son is the ambassador to Poland, and wouldn't you know, he's strategically placed in there, another CFR trilateral committee guy. So the Brzezinski's are still fighting Russia. He's fighting Russia from the grave. He's got his son in as ambassador. He's got his daughter over at MSNBC spitting lies constantly and propaganda. So the legacy of the Brzezinski's lives on to this day. Now, it's also worth remembering that in 2018, NATO had their biggest military exercises since the Cold War. And of course, that caused a lot of tensions between the U.S. and Russia. It was 50,000 soldiers from 31 countries comprising NATO's 29 member states, plus Sweden and Finland. Now, in case anyone wants to remember, the only time that the Dems supported Trump was when he was bombing Syria. But what happened when he decided he didn't want to send arms to Ukraine any longer? Well, that's when they impeached him. And I definitely think there's a connection there, no question, because Ukraine is so important to the global elite. Now, I think it's important to kind of look at the Ukraine-Russia situation pre-2014 before we overthrew their government there because there's been a lot of different things happen in Ukraine. And only 10 years prior to that, in 2004, there was something called the Orange Revolution. And it was one in a series of these color revolutions that kind of started after the year 2000. And it seems to be the preferred method of those groups that I mentioned who were behind the 2014 overthrow of the Ukrainian government. So let's look at F. William Engdahl's information on the Orange Revolution and get some perspective on how things were at that time. He says, Ukraine and Russia were so intertwined economically, socially, and culturally, especially in the east of the country, that they were almost indistinguishable from one another. Most of Russia's natural gas pipelines from West Siberia flowed through Ukraine on their way to Germany, France, and other Western European states. In military strategic terms, a non-neutral Ukraine in NATO would pose a fatal security blow to Russia. In the age of advanced nuclear weapons and anti-missile defenses, that was just what the Bush administration wanted. A look at a map of Eurasian geography revealed a distinct pattern to the Washington-sponsored color revolutions after the year 2000. They were clearly aimed at isolating Russia and ultimately cutting her economic lifeline, her pipeline networks that carried Russia's huge reserves of oil and natural gas from the Urals and Siberia to Western Europe and Eurasia straight through Ukraine. The transformation of Ukraine from an independent former Russian republic to pro-NATO U.S. satellite was accomplished by the so-called Orange Revolution in 2004, overseen by Ambassador John Herbst, appointed U.S. ambassador to Ukraine in May 2003. Now, he was this guy who had also helped with Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, and he also had been the ambassador to Uzbekistan. It reads on, the man Washington decided to back in his orchestrated regime change in Ukraine was Viktor Yushchenko, a 50-year-old former governor of Ukraine's central bank. Yushchenko's wife, Katerina, an American citizen born in Chicago, had been an official in both the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations and in the U.S. State Department. She had come to Ukraine as a representative of the U.S. Ukraine Foundation, whose board of directors included Grover Norquist, one of the most influential conservative Republicans in Washington at the time. Norquist had been called the managing director of the hardcore right, backing the George W. Bush presidency. Now, the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation was the same entity 
or organization where Victoria Newland was recorded bragging about how much money the U.S. State Department had given Ukraine over the years. The central focus of Yushchenko's slick campaign for president was to advocate membership for Ukraine in NATO and the European Union. His campaign used huge quantities of orange-colored banners, flags, posters, balloons, and other props, leading the media inevitably to dub it the Orange Revolution. Of course, they're always happy to pretend like these uprisings are solely organic. Washington funded a pro-democracy youth group that played a particularly significant role organizing huge street demonstrations that helped him win the rerun of a disputed election. In Ukraine, the pro-Yushchenko movement worked under the slogan Pora, or It's Time, and they brought in people who had helped organize the Rose Revolution in Georgia. Chair of Georgia's Parliamentary Committee on Defense and Security, G.V. Targa Madze, former member of the Georgian Liberty Institute, as well as members of Georgia's youth group, Kamara. The Georgians were consulted by Ukrainian opposition leaders on techniques of nonviolent struggle. Georgian rock bands, such as Zumba, Soft Eject, and Green Room, which had supported the Rose Revolution, now organized a solidarity concert in Kiev to support Yashchenko's campaign in November 2004. A Washington-based PR firm called Rock Creek Creative also played a significant role in branding the Orange Revolution by developing a pro-Yushchenko website around the orange logo and color scheme. And he goes on to talk about how CNN and BBC actually helped a lot with the propaganda. And he says that the U.S. State Department spent some $20 million for the Ukraine presidency. The same U.S. government-backed NGOs that had been in Georgia also produced the results in Ukraine. The George Soros Open Society Institute, Freedom House, and the National Endowment for Democracy, along with its two subsidiaries, the National Republican Institute and the National Democratic Institute, which are both basically arms of the National Endowment for Democracy, which is controlled by the CIA. According to Ukrainian reports, the U.S.-based NGOs, along with the conservative U.S.-Ukraine Foundation, were active throughout Ukraine, feeding the protest movement of Pora and Zanawa and training poll watchers. At a certain point in 2004, following Washington's success in Georgia and in Ukraine, Russia's Putin moved to centralize control over the one strategic asset Russia possessed that the Western European NATO countries badly needed, energy. Russia was far and away the world's largest producer of natural gas. Now I'm going to read a little bit more. I hope it's cool that I read a little bit from this F. William Ingdahl book, Full Spectrum Dominance. I know he's a friend of 21 Wire and Patrick Hennigsen, as well as my buddy Hesher from Boiler Room and ACR. And I'll put a link to this book. It's a great book, and the reason I want to read out of it is because he sums up everything in one kind of uh, small section here in the book better than any articles that I've been able to find online. He said, The unspoken agenda of Washington's aggressive Central Asian policies after the collapse of the Soviet Union could be summed up in a single phrase, control of energy. So long as Russia was able to use its strategic trump card its vast oil and gas reserves, to win economic allies in Western Europe, China, and elsewhere, it could not be politically isolated. The location of the various color revolutions was aimed directly at encircling Russia and cutting off at any time her export pipelines. With more than 60% of Russia's dollar export earnings coming from its oil and gas exports, such an encirclement would amount to an economic chokehold on Russia by the U.S.-led NATO. He's even got a map on here showing the color revolutions, where they are geographically. The color revolution in the tiny republic of Georgia and the effort to draw Georgia into NATO under the new president, U.S.-trained Mikhail Saakashvili was in part aimed at securing a new oil pipeline route to the vast oil reserves of the Caspian Sea near Baku and Azerbaijan. 
British Petroleum had secured the lead role in developing huge offshore oil fields near Baku soon after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. With Washington's backing as early as the Clinton administration, BP had sought to build an oil pipeline that would somehow avoid transit through Russia. Owing to the mountainous terrain, the only such route was from Baku across Georgia via Tbilisi and then across the Black Sea to NATO member Turkey, where it would connect with a pipeline to the Mediterranean Turkish port of Sehan. The Baku-Sehan pipeline was originally proclaimed by BP and others as the project of the century. Zbigniew Brzezinski was a consultant to BP during the Clinton era, lobbying Washington to support the BP project. It was Brzezinski who went to Baku in 1995 unofficially on behalf of President Clinton to meet with Azeri President Haydar Aliyev and to negotiate the new independent Baku pipeline routes, including what became the BTC or Baku Tbilisi Sehan pipeline. In 2003, Russia had become the world's second largest producer of crude oil after Saudi Arabia. During the Soviet era, the economies of Ukraine, Georgia, Russia, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and other republics of the USSR had been fully integrated economically. After the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 90s, its gas and oil pipelines and export routes across Eurasia continued to operate. Moreover, the former Soviet regions, including Ukraine, continued to receive Russian gas via the state gas monopoly Gazprom at highly subsidized prices below that charged in Western Europe. We'll finish up here. Zbigniew Brzezinski sat on the board of directors of a rather impressive, if little known, organization called the U.S.-Azerbaijan Chamber of Commerce, or USACC. The chairman of USACC in Washington had been Tim Sejka, president of ExxonMobil Exploration. USACC board members, in addition to Brzezinski, included Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft, and James Baker III. Scowcroft had been the advisor on national security to Presidents Nixon, Ford, Bush Sr., and Bush Jr. Baker was the man who traveled to Tbilisi in 2003 to tell Chevronardze in person that Washington wanted him to step aside in favor of a U.S.-trained shockish filly. Dick Cheney was a former USACC member as well before he became vice president. So you see what the elites do when they get the power. They use their power and positions and influence and their basically reputations to become bazillionaires. He says another so-called NGO that invariably turned up in each of the color revolution regime changes was Freedom House. Along with Open Society Institutes of George Soros, the U.S.-funded National Endowment for Democracy, and others, the curiously named Freedom House turned up everywhere. Now soon I'm going to do a show on the Soros Network, and we're going to talk about Freedom House, National Endowment for Democracy, and these other connected institutes, like you said. But before I end this episode, I wanted to mention in December 2021 an article by Daniel Warner called Words Matter, the Bucharest NATO Summit and its Contentious Promise. Words do matter, even when we think we have said something casually or of not great importance. They can come back to haunt. Item 23 of the final declaration of the 2008 NATO Ministerial Summit in Bucharest said, NATO welcomes Ukraine's and Georgia's Euro-Atlantic aspirations for membership in NATO. We agree today that these countries will become members of NATO. Ten years later, speaking at a meeting with Russia's ambassadors and permanent representatives, President Vladimir Putin warned about the eventual membership. He said, we will react to such aggressive steps, which pose a direct threat to Russia. Following President Biden and Putin's talks this December, the Moscow Times reported that the Russian foreign ministry insisted that the United States should formally close the door to NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. In the fundamental interests of European security, 
it is necessary to officially disavow the decision of the 2008 NATO Bucharest summit that Ukraine and Georgia will become NATO members, the Russian foreign ministry was quoted. The Russian ministry had already argued in 2018 that the verbal promise to Soviet President Gorbachev not to expand NATO to the east in the exchange for the Soviet leader's consent to the annexation of East Germany by West Germany was fragrantly violated and is the source of much of the present conflict between Russia and the West. But a spoken promise is different from a written declaration, although the written promise should be put in perspective. Item 23 of the Bucharest Declaration, promising future NATO membership to Ukraine and Georgia, came after references to Albania and Croatia entering accession talks, praise for NATO troops in Afghanistan and Kosovo, NATO's ability to counteract terrorism, concern about the situation in Darfur, NATO's assistance to the people of Iraq, and an eventual invitation to the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia once the problem of its name issue was solved. A feeling of complacency and smug confidence must have reigned at the 2008 Bucharest meeting. Both the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union had ceased to exist almost 20 years before. The major enemy, NATO, had been formed to counter was gone. The Cold War was over. The Iron Curtain had risen. The final declaration reads more like a confirmation of why NATO should exist and a glimpse into the future rather than a strategic plan against feared enemies. We, the heads of the state and government of the member countries of the North Atlantic Alliance, met today to enlarge our alliance and further strengthen our ability to confront the existing and emerging 21st century security threats, the declaration began. It was important to justify NATO's continuing existence and what it would be doing in the future. Logically, the NATO leaders had to answer the obvious question. Shouldn't NATO disband after the Warsaw Pact had already shut down? From Moscow's perspective, the eastern enlargement of NATO has always gone against the spoken promise to Gorbachev. Today, the Russians are drawing a red line at Ukraine and Georgia, but in 2008, NATO has already integrated former members of the Warsaw Pact, such as Hungary and Poland, and three Baltic states. Why the hardened attitude? An obvious answer is that Putin feels more assertive, but more important is the premise of NATO troops on his border. In order to understand this fear, one should go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. U.S. threatened nuclear war when the Soviet Union put missiles in Cuba, some 90 miles south of Florida. If Georgia and Ukraine were to join NATO, Russia fears Western troops would be directly on its border. Although Latvia and Estonia are members of NATO and border Russia, this may be a reason for Russian activity on the eastern border of Ukraine as well as their takeover of the territories of South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia. It is also important to remember that a solution to the Cuban Missile Crisis was the removal of U.S. Jupiter missiles from Turkey, which shared the border with the former Soviet Union. Now it goes on, and again, I'll put that in my show notes, but just a little bit more reason behind why we're seeing Russia inside Ukraine. And don't get me wrong, I'm not a Putin apologist. I don't have a boner for Putin like some do in the alt media and in the conservative media. Although it seems like to me, from what I've gathered, most of the conservatives, or at least the pundits, are all on board for war with Russia and you know going in full force against Russia and all that stuff like they usually are. And I think they've totally been fooled and seem to always be willing to support some sort of physical wars thinking that that is patriotic when it's really not. And they need to think about these things because they have very, very serious consequences. And that's about it for this episode. You know, I started out thinking this would be the third and final episode of Whose War Is It Anyway? And I've got at least one or two more episodes that I could do on this. And I think I probably will because I've pulled all the information together and I've spent so much time looking into this whole thing. And I hope this has helped you guys to understand a little bit more about what's going on, the lead up to Russia going into Ukraine and all that stuff. And I really hope that you will tune in for the next episode. I'm hoping I can wrap it up in one, but it may end up being two because the last part is really going to be taking a look at Russia and really 
asking ourselves that we can trust Putin. You know, sometimes we are kind of in the mindset, I think, because we've been trained to believe there's always a clear good guy and a clear bad guy. And sometimes there's no clear good guy or bad guy. You know, it's just the way it is. And I think we need to accept that. And it's very hard for us to do that because we've been conditioned to believe otherwise. But I thank you for sticking with me and listening to this. Thank you for supporting the show. I want to thank all of you supporters. Thank you guys for sharing the show. Thank you for leaving good reviews on the show. Thank you to Alternate Current Radio and the Boiler Room crew for hosting the show. Thank you to John Brisson for supporting the show and putting my shows up on his wonderful We've Read the Documents YouTube page. Thank you to Jack from Conspiracy Just a Coincidence for supporting the show. Thank you to all you guys who really make it happen. Thank you to Flat, Dark, and Earthy. Thank you to Greg. Thank you to Abdullah. Thank you, James, Bill, Peterson, Kevin, Chris, Rooster, Kilowatt, Sir Tim of the Tunnels, Aaron, David, and James. You guys kick ass. Thank you so much. Now, I know it's taken me a long time to get this episode out, but I'm going to be getting probably three episodes out this week. That's kind of the way I work. I am so busy with my personal life, and there's been so much going on here lately that I've just gotten behind on the editing, and that's my problem, finding the time to edit. But kind of the way I do things is when I get behind, I just put all the shows out at once or close together to kind of make up for being slow about getting content out. But I've got a lot of plans for the future of the show, and I've had to get new equipment, and that's been another thing that set me back because I had to wait to save up money to get some of the stuff. had to wait for some of the things to come back. There was one item I had to return because it was defective. So I'm trying to ramp up the sound of the show. I got a better video camera, and I'm going to be doing more videos and some exclusive stuff just for patrons. So I'm getting it all together here, guys, and hopefully hearing about another month i'll have everything all the kinks worked out and have a better kind of system for doing things because that's what i'm trying to do because i am kind of short on time i need everything to work correctly everything to be cohesive and organized and that is what i'm trying to work on right now so i can bring you great content that sounds professional at least as professional as i can make it and really trying to bring you something special So thank you so much, guys, for supporting the show. Hope you're having a great week. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.
think the puppet on the right chairs my beliefs. I think the puppet on the left is more to my liking. Hey, wait a minute. There's one guy holding up both puppets. Shut up. Go back to bed, America. Your government is in control.